Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Okay, um, I was thinking about it rather ruefully. Uh, here we're in a 12-step retreat about walking the steps, and yet I thought, well, hey, you aren't talking about the steps yet. And the answer is, then I realized, no, I sure am. You ain't got a prayer working these steps until you've done the first step. And that's what we've been focused on so severely here in these first two talks of, number one, what is lust and the problem of it, and then number two, getting off of it. Until you do that, you ain't, you know, so we're talking, the first step is the passport to this program. And the first step is about lust. And then, until you get through that door, or the, this, the first step is the door to this program, until you get through that, you ain't got nothing. So that's why all that emphasis is. I need to bring out a point that I didn't make about lust to kind of finish that up. It's an overwhelming thing. And then there were some questions that came up really about steps. I'll entertain those next. And then uh, after that, I'll get into the, the step work. Uh, in, and uh, I won't go through it step at a time, but I'll take the steps in the three essential groups as I see them. But the first thing about lust that I didn't cover and that is so awful is the progressive nature of lust. What it is to get the, uh, when people first heard about AIDS, they thought, my God, that danger of AIDS, that'll stop sexual stuff. And the answer is the hell it will. It increases it. Why does AIDS increase sexual stuff? Because it adds intrigue and tease and forbidden. If I do this, I'm going to die. Before, we just thought we'd go to hell and we'd get hair on our hands. Now we're going to die too. (laughs) So, we've added one more reason to lust. I saw the most awful case of this I have ever seen in our Phoenix meeting. A guy started lusting after his two daughters, uh, like teenage daughters, mid-teen daughters. And then he started fantasizing uh, about touching them. And then he is touching them. And then he starts fantasizing about having sex with them. So he drugs one of them and has sex with her, then drugs the other one and has sex with her. Oddly enough, then one of them turns out to be a prostitute. And she comes back into the home with a baby and he molests the baby. Okay, uh, that's nice and dramatic, but again, let's not be carried away with the drama and miss the point, which is the point is, this honey, as she eats on us, it takes more of it to get the hit, and we start having to give it more and more and more, 
to get the hit because our, as our bodies develop some tolerance to it, we need higher levels. Now, I'm not doing this as... In the old days, I would have done this to scare you to death and to shock you. But I don't believe in that. In fact, I believe it's the exact opposite, just like I said with AIDS. There is no scaring you to death or shocking you. That's counterproductive. It's not needed and not useful. It's like I hear people screaming and yelling about some theological thing. And I want to say, what in the hell are you yelling about? Why does your God need so much noise and, and hand waving? And what I've come to see is, is when you know the way to the gold mine, you do not yell and use a lot of rhetorical gestures to point the way to the gold mine. When you're telling the way to the gold mine to some friends of yours, what do you do? You communicate it as softly and clearly and directly as you possibly can communicate it. Okay, I know where the gold mine is. You go to the Madison River, out of Bozeman, go west, until you hit the first place where the road hits the river. You'll see a pair of outhouses there, which is called the outhouse exit. And 30 yards to the right of the outhouse, north, there's a rock, and the gold mine is right under that rock. Now, do I need to, you know, all these gestures and all this emphasis and all this example and illustration for that? No, not going to need any of it. Do I need horror stories? No, that's what gold, where the gold mine is. Go there and look. I, I was there and got a whole bunch of gold and there's a whole bunch left for you. It's that simple. Now, is my job to make you want to go to the gold mine? That's your business. The handle to your door is on your side. I was giving a motivational talk one time and somebody said, my God, you haven't mentioned the word motivation yet. I was giving a business talk about improving our ability and function. And they said, you haven't mentioned the word motivation. I said, no, because the handle to the door of motivation is on your side. I'm a consultant now for some very high-powered salesmen who, you know, the fifty to $150,000-a-year guys who want to get better. And essentially what I do is help them get out of their own way. I don't give them any big razzmatazz kind of stuff. So that the point is, is this stuff is progressive, and I tell you that, just so you can file it away, add to your piece of information and where the gold mine is and whether you might decide to go there, because you look at whatever your form your sexual addiction is taking right now, then double that, and that's what it's going to be if you don't do something about it, or it's what it's going to be if you do come in, and then I believe just exactly as Clancy believes, your sexual addiction grows whether you come in or not. So if you want to come in and then go back out there five years from now, you will be blessed with a section addiction that's five years more developed. You say, hey, that ain't fair. I didn't use it. I didn't get the benefit of it all that time. Poor baby. <laughs> no. She's five years down the road, buddy. <laughs> she's moving down that road like a caterpillar tractor, and whether you're in or out, she's moving down the road.
So guess what I'm interested in? I'm interested in building the most hellacious, bodacious program you have ever seen, buddy. My vision of this program is like I'm hanging, like I said earlier, over 5,000 foot drop, like I'm hanging off the top of Half Dome out of Yosemite. And she said 2,000 feet of drop in solid rock below me. And the 12-step program is not steps, but it's strands of rope. And each of those strands of rope, the first three strands are the introduction to the program, and they'll hold me to the wall there, even though I'm losing the greatest thing that I ever had, which was my sexual hit. That was the only comforter I ever had that I could ever depend on. And I could depend on it all the time. It was always there. And was it there in spades? I didn't ever quit. I didn't quit this drug because it failed me. This drug was working for me like no other drug I could ever conceive of was working at the last time I used it. And I know I go back to her and she's going to be working for me again like that. The only thing is I don't want to pay the price that the drug costs. And I didn't know then what the drug cost me. It cost me all of life. I know now what the drug cost me. So I'm building a rope that's holding me over 3,000 feet of solid rock. And I'm hanging there on that rope. So the first three strands are of hemp. And they'll hold me long enough to get into the program. And then I work the next four strands, which is about our defects of character. And one of the exercises I use with my sponsees is when they get to step six, where they say they're entirely ready to be freed of their defects of character, I ask them to go around and tell people why they aren't entirely ready. I want to hang on to this or that defective character because I love it so. I can stay a baby. I don't have to grow. I don't have to develop. So I want to hang on to that defective character. And then I have them tell them about that till they hear how foolish they sound hanging on to that stuff. I was saying about hanging on to something to old Dave sitting over there peeking around. And he said, that's a very dangerous statement to talk about hanging on anything, buddy. <laughs> and so I don't want to hang on to nothing. So those four strands of the rope are being willing to let God take away my defects of character. You find me the psychologist, with all due respect to psychologist, I'm one. You find me the psychologist where you can go to him and say, would you please take away my defects of character? He won't understand what you're saying. He can't do it. If you want to come to me and say, Jess, I want you to take away my defects of character, it says I can't do it as a psychologist, but I can point the way to the way that can remove all defects of character that stand in the way of your usefulness to others. That's a hell of a deal. It doesn't cost nothing. The meter ain't ticking all the time. Okay, so those strands of rope from four through seven are the strands that then hold you more solidly there, hanging over this horrible distance that lies below. And then you do the amend step, which is cleaning up the crap. And I hear, I hear people buck at that step. Like one of the great people in, in the 12-step program, his own son isn't doing his fourth step. And so because he isn't doing his fourth step, it blocks him from, the, from four, five, six, and seven. And then it blocks him from eight and nine, because if you don't admit your defects and we want to see it, you can't clear away the wreckage of the past as you do in eight and nine. So I'm putting those three strands in place, so now i got nine strands of hemp. 
And then I do those as quick as I can one time on this program and then practice these principles in all my affairs the rest of my life or the last three steps. And as in my image, the last three steps of this program are a different thing in their steel. And so I weave three steel strands to my rope that's holding me over the this precipice. And each of those last three steps of those three steel strands, and the magical thing about this step is the harder I work it, the bigger each of those three steel strands gets. So pretty soon my cable becomes a few small hemp or small hemp strands and three huge steel strands, and it essentially becomes a steel cable. The only problem is the day that I think I got it done, the, the rope starts to weaken. And the longer I get complacent and think I got it done, all of a sudden the rope just rots and I just fall down below as I should fall. Because I start, to, when I'm, complacency means I, that I've got my work done and I'm God, I can know something like that. My work is never done. Because I'm building a cable that holds me over that chasm. And I want it to be the strongest possible cable that I can build. Okay, now I, there were some things that I didn't cover there and I asked two, three people who brought up questions to ask me the questions now. I'll stick them on the tape because they've got to do with this step stuff and they've got to do with the getting rid of the other lust in our life, which is a, a, another focus of this, of this, um, tape. Okay, uh, question, yeah. John, I'm a sexaholic. Hi, John. Uh, I wanted to read me the repeat question I had. Um, you mentioned as a way of busting lust, uh, pray instantly. Yeah. And I told you that I've had trouble this week with lust knocking very loudly in the morning and me being lazy. Yeah. Okay, yeah. He said, how do you stop lust instantly, and especially in that toper that comes for many early in the morning, or in other times like taking a nap where you're kind of half coming out of sleep? Those are the most dangerous times there are in this program. And what I tell people that I sponsor to do is the minute your eyes open, you get your damn feet on that floor. And you get up. And you get out of there. When you go into the bathroom, you take your uh, shorts with you. You get in the shower and you get a shower as fast as you can to clean off and then get the hell out of there. Get your clothes on. Have your back to the mirror. And you get those shorts on that fast. Uh, Harvey, in his early years of sobriety, slept in a pair of warm-up pants so he couldn't get a hold of himself at night. Okay, we're talking about going to any lengths. We're not talking about screwing around here. We're not talking about half measures. We're not talking any of that crap. Okay? So you don't risk anything in that dangerous time and and it's just like an eating disorder. Eating disordered people never eat at mealtime. Because if you eat at mealtime, you can't be eating all day long. And you can't forget whether you ate something or didn't eat something. So I got to do this and I got to do that. What a non-food disordered person does is they sit down at 8, 12, and 6, and they eat a meal, and they get up and don't eat any other time than that. And you happen to be looking at a guy who's going to lose... 20 pounds.
in 20 years. Gradual, like I gained it. And I have food sobriety since my birthday, October 11th, when I was 68 years old. So I have that many days, nearly a month of food sobriety, which means no eating between meals. Because I'm incapable and powerless over food, and so I'm incapable of keeping track of how much I eat. So that's my answer to that particular thing. But these, these steps are serious, they're life and death, and they're beautifully written down. And to me, what, what I see in most step meetings is, is to me really a bunch of crap because it's like the person can't, who's listening to it can't read or can't get the point of what the hell they read. And, and so to me, the, what we've been talking about is really the, re- the most important kind of step meeting, and that is why I need to work these steps. I need to work these steps because the drug that I took to escape problems was killing me. It was robbing me of life and life in its fullness. And the last uh, tape uh, is going to be devoted to the visions and the experiences I've already had at, of life in its fullest and it's stuff that I've never seen written down. I just can't believe some of the things that have, are happening to me recently and then also looking back I can see some other things. Okay, there are a couple of more questions I had, questioners I had. Yes. Just you have spoken to me before and you asked to kind of re-ask this question. I've uh, an addict for over 30 years and I have but of two months sobriety. And I have a life that is quite unmanageable right now. And I asked you how would I, any suggestions on how I could look at my life, my marriage, my situation without lust after having been dependent upon it for so many years. Okay. What's your first name? Dennis. Dennis. Okay, Dennis. Dennis asked the question. Okay, here's, here his constant companion, his comforter, total comforter in all times of need. And we're taking it away from him. And, and there's a cruelty in that. Because we're taking it away from you and we haven't got anything else to give you. Except a bunch of phony slogans. Live and let live. Let go and let God. What a bunch of bullshit. In this in the sense of your eyes right now. What the shit comfort is that? It's, a, it's the coldest thing in the world. It's like old Vince said. He said about his brother who was an alcoholic, came from a big Catholic family. He said, I wouldn't take this bottle away from you if I didn't have something better to offer you. Okay, I think the reason Clancy is such a tremendously successful sponsor in AA is because if I were sponsoring you, Dennis, what I, I don't I don't want to sponsor, but I, I, I'm not that, looking for sponsorees. I got plenty. But what I would say to you is, hey, Dennis, what I'm asking you to do is the hardest thing in the world, which is to walk through. You're standing at the edge of the Sahara Desert. I'm asking you to put down the water, your canteens, and you and me are going to take a walk out of that desert, and we're going to keep on walking. And that's it's. It's the hardest thing I could possibly ask of you, but that water that you're drinking is killing you. And as you and I gradually get through the desert, there will gradually be some comfort for you. But before we get to that time of comfort, Dennis, your damn lips are going to be so dry and cracked 
you're going to be chewing and sucking on a pebble and there ain't no saliva. Your whole heart and soul and body is going to be aching as only a person, say, in that environment would ache. And all I can't say anything to you. I can just say, I know, Dennis, how you feel, but help is out there. And the, the, all I can offer you is, is, a, is what compassion I can give you for how tough that is going to be until you start to have some of the understandings that I have and that other people have who have lived without that thing and found that there is a better way. So Vince was not able to take his bottle away from his brother and hand him a new bottle that would take its place. So we have to, in these 12-step programs, Alcoholics Anonymous, any of them, we have to ask this terribly hard thing of each of our newcomers. And where my mistake was in the past, and I just recently discovered this, in fact, I've got a handout here, come get it after the meeting. Uh, what I've done is recently discovered this, is I was asking that of sponsorees and people in the program without any understanding of what I was asking and of how hard it was, and expecting just because I had had a particular unbelievable gift where my, my journey was, I'd been so pre- well prepared with all these years in in, a, in SA or another 12-step program. I had 17 years, and for a bunch of reasons, my comfort came quick. And so then I'm sitting around wondering, how the hell come you don't have that same thing? Okay, I see now my stupidity and my coldness and my hard-heartedness and not understanding what it is I would be asking of you. But there, but there is nothing more than that that I can say, Dennis. Uh, but it, it's important for me that when I say that to you, it does help you in the sen- two sense. Number one, I show you I understand what the damn problem is. And number two, I understand how damn difficult it is, a thing that I'm asking of you. You see? Yeah. Yeah, just I'm Charlie. I'm a white Republican sex ball. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Charlie. I asked you before. Uh, I want to spread the program, but uh, I'm not an alcoholic, so I can't walk into an AA meeting and right. say, you know, uh, yeah. there's an SA meeting after this meeting. So what yeah. could I do to spread right. the word? Okay, how do you spread the word? And uh, there's two, three things that are very simple to do. Go to your family therapist. They really see the sexual addiction because some wife or husband is in there saying, my partner is an idiot about sex, and uh, people can see this. And there's a lot of information now, or an increasing amount of information out among therapists. Then go to your ministers. They're hearing this kind of stuff. Put an ad, a little classified ad, uh, or a little ad in your, uh, get yourself a meeting place, and then put in the meeting notices, Sexaholics Anonymous meeting at such a time, at such a place. Don't have a phone number. Uh, but then also, like they're using here, is a great idea is you rent an 800 number and you have that in there too, so they got a telephone number they can call. Uh, originally, the argument, you know, Roy used to argue vehemently against posting the notice uh, of our meeting place. Hell, we've had our meeting place publicly uh, all these years, and there's only one guy who wanted, who came, you know, a real sexual weirdo who wanted to come in and talk. Well, we're descended from the monkeys and going on, you know, a nutcase. Real nutcase. I mean, you know, different kind of nutcase than us. <laughs> that kind of nutcase I can't identify with. <laughs> that was what I liked about reading the book on Debtors Anonymous. 
for God's sake, you're one of the first 12-step programs I've ever found that I couldn't identify with. Because <laughs> I saved money. You know, I've saved as much as half of our income for years and different things. And we got, you know, the only debt we got is a, our home mortgage and a, and a couple of cars. So it, it, it was beautiful <laughs> to see one. So, yeah, there is an answer of things you can do. Yeah, George. Um, just recently, last week, I had a chance to listen to your important work on conference tape. And there's something in it that had, I only listened to it for about 10 minutes, and there was something that had a profound impact on me, and I wanted to share it. And, and I'm leading up to a question. Is And you touched on it today, about um, when you went to see the movie Forrest Gump, and, and the reaction of seeing, you know, for a sex addict, what it does to us and not a person that's not a sex addict. Yeah, perfect. And uh, I've been thinking about this all week. I've got a better example of it, too, than that since then. So okay. go, ahead, go ahead, Bill. But my question is, um, you touched on it today about the, going into a restaurant. And it sounded like you're, you handle it better now yeah. than you have been in the past. It's no problem now. Is it um, in recovery? Will this diminish yes. it, uh, these types of uh, it, it's going reactions? To work. Now, the reaction of walking into a restaurant diminishes or goes away for me. Because uh, I haven't done that stuff with waitresses for God knows how long. But the initial reaction does not diminish. An even better example, I was talking in my Portland tape they referred to of where the, there was just this little sexual content in... Forrest Gump and I reacted to it, you know, out of all proportion to its importance. A, a, a really even far more horrible example was a movie that I watched with my grandson, who's now our son, and my wife. And they said, oh, Grandpa, this is a good movie. You will love this. And let's see. It's, uh, oh, it's uh, the first movie Hanks made. Uh, huh? Big, yeah. Okay, Big is a great movie, right? Guess which scene a sexaholic remembers. Guess which scene normal people remember. Which one? Well, I, I, you guys can't tell me because you're so stupid. Huh? Yeah, the toy store dancing on the teeth. That's what normal people remember. And our reaction, what the hell do they know? <laughs> There was only one scene in that movie. So here's my, I'm watching with my 13-year-old son. And that scene with him falling, you know, start, touching her brassiere and the strap falling down, it was in my, engraved in my mind for the next week. Okay? That's what it means to be a sexaholic. Now, is that bad? The answer is no. It's the most wonderful thing that ever happened to me. How in the hell could that be? Simple. How would I have found you? How would I possibly be here? How could I have been pulled out of that tailspin of prattling this spiritual stuff where people were coming from all over the country to hear me talk and yet not finding anything? How could I have been saved by, from that? Except because of the fact that I was a sexaholic. 
No, I'm still horrified at my reaction to that movie. Kind of. You know, so it isn't that I'm totally grateful and totally appreciative, but I'm about as appreciative and grateful as I can get, I'll tell you. So, and that'll do for right now. Yeah. Kind of, like, kind of in the same boat Dennis is in, you know, early, yeah. early withdrawal. And, um, I was kind of wondering and hoping that, uh, I was, was going to ask if, if you think that this is similar, this situation here is similar, like, to those experiments that Pavlov did with dogs? No, it has no relationship to it. I mean, can the trigger, will the trigger, trigger, will they weaken as a guy, recover, a person recovers? Uh, yes, they weaken in the sense that they have no power over me. So when this image from big comes up, God help me. So it doesn't have any power over me. It's there, and for a week I'm dealing with it, but it doesn't have any power over me. Because I don't want it anymore, Barry, and that's the answer. Until you don't want it anymore, it's got power over you. And the minute you stop wanting it, it stops having power. So your problem is you still want it, or it wouldn't have any power. And that's the issue. That's what. That's why we spent the first two tapes talking about what we did. Is we have got to be willing to let go of our comforter, the only comforter we've ever known. But that comforter has destroyed our life. It's put a screen between us and reality. We don't know what the hell reality is when we're using that comforter. Now, no problem. Die die to life on a daily basis and then die physically. No sweat. Because then it's no big deal. But there's a funny little twist you can do if you want to and say, hey, I think I'll live a different way. Because I'm sick of running around, you know, whining and complaining and having all kinds of bad stuff happen to me. And there are a lot of people here who got sick of that. And I know their first names. And I talk to them regular and it's lovely. God, it's lovely. They have turned loose, and they're not full of arguments anymore. Once in a while, they try a. Once in a while, they try one of their phony little arguments on me, and I laugh them out of the, the league. And, <laughs> and it's beautiful. I remember one time in the early stages of this, a guy called up and he said, "God, I'm having so much trouble with my fourth step. I've been working on it six and a half years." And, <laughs> I said, I said, call me back in an hour with your fourth step, and we'll, you know, and we'll do a fifth on the phone in an hour. But, uh, but this is too momentous to think. No, I bullshit. I said, you know, write down the major things that you did that you really are troubled by, and you call me back in an hour. And he did. Now he didn't stay. Uh, and the answer is, is there's no magic in in any sponsor in the world. Because if you're gonna if you're gonna act out, buddy, you're gonna act out. Now, this land that I'm gonna describe to you in the last tape, this luminescent land, God is it a stunningly beautiful thing. But when you're about to go across the Sahara Desert, you're filling yourself with up with canteens of water that you know will do the job, even though there's an off taste to it and various repercussions and kickbacks and problems. 
you're saying, screw that dummy, I'm not, I'm not that dumb. Yeah? Why do people call you the Bozeman Hammer? <laughs> Why do people call me the Bozeman Hammer? Well, I can't figure it out because I'm such a gentle, easygoing guy. I could never figure out why anyone would ever put a name like that on me. I, I'm, I'm a person who continually speaks softly and, and gently to the point and, and, you know, and always looking for a soft, easy way to say things. Now, once in a while, I will run into a person who would you know are really hanging on to their addiction tough and they haven't turned loose yet. And in that situation, I'll tend to hammer the hell out of them. But there are many people in this room who I've never said, I've never raised my voice to. Dan, have I ever raised my voice to you? Have I ever hammered you? See? You know, it's just a false bum rap. <laughs> I'm like one of these guys in a prison. You know, I shouldn't have been here. <laughs> it was a bum rap. <laughs> Yeah, you go to a prison and find me a guy who deserves to be there. <laughs> in fact, that's a it's a great secret in uh, in one of the uh, uh, one of the Eastern religions. Uh, the person had a um, had a death in the family and were so sad because their, their child had died, and their teacher sent them to go from door to door and uh, find a family who had not been touched by death. And of course, you can't find it. Somebody said a hand. Yeah. We talked about on this on the same tape, the Portland tape, that progressive victory over lust was a willingness to to surrender more. Is that? Could uh, you go uh, describe that a little more? I mean, okay. Same with what that guy was saying. About yeah, that. Jim asked. You know, what does progressive victory over lust mean? Like I talked in the Portland tape, I said there is more willingness to surrender and surrender faster, and surrender more areas of my life. Uh, but also, uh, there is a real decrease in the frequency of, of my need to have to pray lust away. So that is also a progressive victory. Yeah, I look at big and see that sexual scene and it really hits me too hard. And, and also because uh, this belonged in the first tape, I think us sexaholics have a tremendous susceptibility to images. I think we have an un, un overwhelming ability to, to get hold of and retain forever those images. I know they're as fresh in my mind as the first day I saw them, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later. So that uh, that doesn't go away, and the lust coming knocking at the door doesn't go away, but lust doesn't come to the door as often. And then my tremendous, not just willingness, but calmness. Oh, I see I'm being an idiot and I'm taking a scene out of big, totally out of consequence. God help me. Or I don't even have to pray God help me. It, well, look what an idiot I'm being, you know, and just laugh at it now. And that to me is, that's as much progressive victory as I can talk about at this 11 and a half years of point of sexual sobriety. But it's before I'm halfway through, so it's a lot. And if I if I didn't have any more than what I have today, God said, you got to stand on what you got. I said, hey, beautiful, thank you, God. It's beyond my wildest expectations anyway. Yeah.
responsible yeah. for what you do. Can you talk about that? Okay. Now, thank you, uh, Kit. And that's a very... My daughter, in fact, when I told her I was coming out here to talk to you, she said, Dad, are you going to talk to him about the first thought, second thought thing? And yeah, that's the first thought is on God. The next thought is on me. It's another way of looking at lust knocking at the door. I got the handle. Do I take it in and entertain it? <laughs> now, there are people who use this goofy uh, three-second rule of lust. Well, you, you can lust for three seconds, and then you got to ask God to take it away. What a bunny, what a sexaholic twist on things that is. Oh God, my comforter's here. I can enjoy it only three seconds. I've been in lust like a mother. Well, I got these three seconds. Oh, God, how stupid. Hey, that stuff is, is going to kill me and kill life. Out of here. Out of here. I don't want anything to do with lust. I don't even want anything to do with people. Uh, it's like Vince said. He said, I left that herd that was looking for another drink. And joined that herd that was looking for another day's sobriety. Okay, I'm interested in those people like you, each of you who are so precious, because you're looking for another day's sobriety from lust. Yeah. I'm here to respect that. I didn't see that. If we recognize that the alcohol can never take a drink, is that Angie? What did you say your first name is? Nancy? Well, Nancy asked the best and the hardest question there is. And I've got horrible news for her in the answer. She wanted to know is because an alcoholic can't take his first drink of lust or of alcohol, then does that mean we can't? Uh, how can we participate in marriage? As she's a married person, and some of you will go through that process and become married. It would be nice to tell you something different, and Roy uh, thought the answer was a, a different thing, and in some earlier writing, he wrote about this unbelievably gorgeous union with his wife. He isn't writing that kind of stuff anymore. By and large, most sexaholic couples, whether married in when they came into the program or married after they came in the program, do not have what we would think of as a normally functioning sexual relationship. We screwed that one up. And we, so far, by and large, in my knowledge, people have not got it unscrewed. Now, there has been a substantial improvement, Nancy, in sexual relationships with some of the people, in the married people, where they're able to have sex and able not to get into lust. But one of the sex addicts, in fact, the sex addict that I told you about who got so drunk on lust, when he's having intercourse with his wife, he focuses on the sensation of his hands on her back and the closeness, their physical closeness, he takes his mind off the or developing orgasm because it triggers lust in him and then he just goes bonkers and goes away from her. So he focuses on their closeness, their physical closeness and the tenderness 
as a way to avoid focusing, well, and keeps his focus off the developing orgasm. And that's just, and that's an extreme example, but it's an example. So I would love to be able to tell you, and I was looking for that when, when Roy said that in some of those early literature, I thought, oh wow, this is it. We get into SA and we get recovered and we have this orgasm without end and sex to the 19th power. We're in orbit. Well, guess what that tells about me? I'm a sexaholic. And sex is the beginning and end of everything. But Nancy, you're looking at a guy who's been celibate longer than all but one priest in this program. And it has not hurt uh, in, a, in any marked way our, our relationship as I see it. It was hard for my wife to accept. But I had screwed that thing up enough in the, because of my sexually acting out and my own, the consequences of it and the consequences on the relationship, that that was not something that was re- returned to me. But uh, it's amazing how much else there is. There's a line in the program that says, sex, we found sex was indeed optional. We don't believe that, of course, when we first read it or don't even hear it <laughs> for a while. But it's in there, and it is. And I find that there are about 10,000 things in a marriage, and sex is one of the 10,000, as opposed to my earlier view of life, where there was one thing, and to, to hell with the other 9,999. So uh, I hear about it uh, you know, once every three months or six months. Uh, but uh, that's it. Uh, so, and so I, I, I wish I had, I wish I had great news for you, Nancy. But at the present state of development, that's all we know. That's what we know. But Harvey just told me that he and I were talking about that the other day. And see, in Nashville, we got the, a town with overwhelming amounts of recovery. We've got uh, a lot of people. Like I say, we've got about twenty some five years sober down there. We've got uh, some people living with a spouse, as I understand spouse. We've got a couple of lesbian relationships down there, lesbian and homosexual, uh, lesbian and gay relationships, where they're committed partners and they've got three to five years of sexual sobriety. And uh, so there's uh, a lot of, the, our only real widespread experience is in Nashville because of Harvey's leadership there. And he said the other day, he said, yes, uh, we were talking about this, and he said, yes, he said, I just don't see very much functioning, you know, sexual functioning in marriage. Uh, in Harvey's case, what he's had to do is leave the initiation of sex up to his wife, and uh, because he's a sex addict. Uh, he just came back from Amsterdam, and here's nude women, uh, pictures on the billboards and all that kind of stuff, and his wife said, Harvey, doesn't it enter your mind, or isn't it, can't you conceive of the idea that this nudity does not mean sex? <laughs> of course he can't, but he could when, when reminded. Uh, but he finally got along, and, uh, and, and, and that, you know, their marriage situation, Harvey says, is, you know, is good. Uh, But, uh, you know, our sexual acting out was the kind of sex where the world turned and the whole earth shook and all that kind of stuff. But that's fine. Uh, 
it's, it's like certain other spectacles and experience in life. They're, they're kind of interesting, but some of them are very, very expensive. Like uh, my life. So uh, if I say, well, I want to, you know, do that one more time, fine, then I can blow my brains out. But I don't think, I don't like that part. Okay. Now, like I said, I wish I could tell you something sweet and pleasant to the ear. And, and, and I said, for God's sake, don't take what I've said as a definitive answer because part of the answer we don't know yet. And we have the place where the program is the weakest in, is in helping people through a courtship. And I've got a, a guy, uh, Shane, uh, who's a divinity student, out, or now he's assistant pastor out in California, but had him for a couple of years during divinity school. And he is engaged now and is facing that. And I just flat told him, I said, Shane, for God's sakes, don't get attached to your sobriety date. Don't start lusting after your sobriety date, because you could lose that, honey, in the process of this thing. And he is finding you know, it real difficult. But the ones who, there are a few who have gotten through courtship with their sobriety date intact, but they remind me too much of Hitler uh, in their rigidity, and I think, God, that's a price to pay to be that, to be that rigid and unfeeling. So it's, it's a zoo, and we've got very limited experience to guide us both in marriage and in courtship. But uh, we've got some people living celibately and beautifully. Yeah. What's your first name, Dave? Uh, Dave asked the question, that's the big question, how does the sex all have fun in life other than going to meetings? And uh, fortunately, the answer is, is that I've never had so much fun as I had since I came into this program. And I haven't so damn much fun now that sometimes I don't have time in all the day for it. We're going to talk a lot more about that in the next tape. But uh, it's opened up an unbelievable vista. But again, it's just exactly what I was saying to Dennis, is my life was totally focused on sex. Well, what the hell else is there? Nothing. Nothing. Okay. If you could see what my day is like now, uh, not that it would mean all that much to you necessarily because there's a bunch of things in my day that you'd have trouble appreciating, but I tell you, it is something else. And each morning I get up and wonder what the heck life has got for me today, you know, considering all it had for me yesterday. And, and, and the answer is very simple, is life is, like here I am, 68, uh, 68 on October 11th, and uh, in fact, my grandson was. We were talking about that. I said, "I said, Robert, I'm going to be around long enough to get you through high school and into college." And, uh, at least I said, "Nah, Grandpa." He said, "No way." He said, "You're going to live to be at least 30. You're going to live at least 30 years." I said, "Hell, Robert, I'd be 97 years old then." That's about right, Grandpa. So, okay, uh, I'm going to be 97 years old because Robert has said so, and he's smarter than me because he's told me so. I told somebody he had an IQ my weight, and he said, no, Grandpa, he said, I don't think you weigh that much. 
<laughs> so, okay, I'm going to live to be 97. And each 10 years, I'm going to have more energy than I had the 10 years before. I'm going to live each day in this total high energy level. And then one day, I'll fall apart like the old one-horse shea, and I'll be dead that night. And I won't be sick to speak of during that time. And I tell you, buddy, that is a rich damn life. Now, I don't ask you to believe it. What I would suggest to you as much as possible is you can put each day of sexual sobriety on top of another one and then let God demonstrate to you. We sat around a bunch of idiot sexaholics last night, for example, enjoying each other's company, for God's sake, listening to each other's stories and not running, not trying to top each other, lie, cheat, connive, steal. We just nothing but have a good time and be intimate with with one another. Intimate with one another? How in the hell can you do that with a guy? It's simple when as you come into recovery. And what I was so struck by is usually each of us would have gotten enough intimacy pretty quick and run like a damn deer with some phony dental ex- appointment excuse. But nobody came up with an excuse. They just all stayed there and faced the music and just loved it. And we talked about opera and we talked about uh, discipline and drum and bugle corps and we talked about great coaching and what is the secret of great coaching and that's why we just, you know, just had a hell of a good time. And uh, everybody had a chance. So yeah, there is a, a lot more to life. But it's what your question reminds me of an old grapevine that I saw. It showed an alcoholic's checkbook. <laughs> Five dollars to the liquor store. Uh, $10 to Smokey's Bar, uh, $6, uh, you know, at such a bar, $10 for food, you know, and so and so, uh, for a bar. <laughs> Just, he was saving all of his money for, for, for whiskey and bars and, and the people around the bars and not wasting any on food and, and those other things. Like Vince used to sponsor, try to sponsor guys and try to bring them in. And, and he said, well, you, you know, you're drinking too much and you ain't taking care of your family. He says, hell, I feed my family. And Vince says, yeah, we feed our livestock, but what the hell does that mean? And so, you know, welcome to the program. You're just exactly the right place. Got to love it. Glad you're here. Yeah, Jerry. Mike Steve from Chicago often talks about his with his wife. Okay, yeah, that's a good that's a good point. Uh, Jerry brought up the point, Nancy, that Mike C in Chicago is having very fine relationships with his wife. So Jerry brings a note of good news to the the old gloom and doom old guy up in front here. <laughs> I'm too old, Nancy. <laughs> yeah. I enjoyed uh, what you wrote in the essay. I forgot the day, but it was, uh, you're one of the first that I know to address the issue of having a relationship, the thought of having a relationship, and how it interferes with your sobriety. Yeah. And I was wondering if you'd uh, comment on that. Yeah. I'd be glad to. This issue of, of relationship, uh, 
highs. Uh, and, and that's just like what I talked about earlier. That drug of going out after somebody and am I going to get them? If you're looking for a way to lose yourself, boy, that is beautiful. I recommend it highly over almost any drug I could ever think of. That makes some of them tranquilizers you buy in them bottles look pale by comparison. You get out after their, after somebody. That magical one. And will that magical one pay attention to you? And are you dressed properly and talking properly and doing, oh God, yada da yada da yada da. And, and I remember I ran into one of these gals down in an SA meeting in Oklahoma City one night and she came up after the meeting and, well just, uh, my problem isn't that sexual stuff. She said, I just tend to have a relationship kind of constant. I said, oh, you don't have sex with the people you're in a relationship with, huh? Well, yeah, I do, but, you know, it's always under, you know, very loving people that I'm, you know, and I want to say, skip me, you know, and she was not ready to hear any of this kind of stuff, and that's fine, it's beautiful. I don't think that's got in for her. But it's part of that, it's an example of that kind of lie. Uh, I subscribe to the literature of the other sexual addiction programs and so I read um, I read the, the I read those newsletters and I hear those people talking about their trying to limit the addiction and the first thought I had was those other two programs would be uh, way bigger than us before too long in the early years and I'm real close to the people in both those other two programs so I'm not uh, I was chosen to speak at their uh, one of them at their first national conference and uh, so I, I have respect there. But the thing I see now is unless you're building a lust-free sobriety, the, the thing keeps going to keep crumbling on you. So I, I can't see now for the long run, we're, we're building something that is really solid. It's slow as a devil, but it is really, really solid. And you can deal, be dealing with an essay guy and having a pretty good chance he's going to be around five years from now in the sense of somebody who's got some established sobriety. And, and it isn't that we don't lose them. It's like Clancy said when he came into this church down in Phoenix. It was a center aisle down there, and he said, half of you, he said, are going to die drunk. And that got my attention. And, and, and that is happening in SA too. Now, it isn't quite like that in the sense of the old AAs taught us in Bozeman, if you drop out of here, you're going to die. Well, from living in Bozeman, I've seen that's not the case. Some people come into or came into AA and got enough AA to get sober and to kind of stay sober without meeting. And they dropped out and stayed sober. I watched them stay sober. And some of them had pretty decent lives. Now, there's another group that came in, lost their sobriety, and went out there and like one guy got burned up in a fire. He'd started with a, he smoking a cigarette and he had a six-pack of beer beside him. The cigarette fell on the mattress and burned him up. And so, yeah, he did die. But what I see in our program is the same thing. Some people come in and get, they get some recovery and then they go out there, or not go out there, they, they go out and, and hold on to recovery. I know some in Bozeman who've done that. But there's a line that Clancy has directed me to that I hadn't seen uh, ever before. And that he says, in the big book, it says that alcoholics of our type must have this program and stay with it all, you know, all the time. We can't live without this program. And I, I think that's a beautiful distinction. And the way I see it is 
those people who can live without this program are not sexaholics of my type. And I'm glad I'm a sexaholic of the type that must have a program or I will die. Because of, you know, what I'm going to say in the next tape, is, is nothing else comes close to it. Yeah. Has the medical community or will the medical community declare this as a disease like they did? Okay. Will the medical community declare this a disease? And I don't know. Uh, and in the old days, I knew how happy the AAs were to have the support of the medical authorities. And, and I thought, oh, God, isn't this wonderful? The medical society has declared this a disease. And, and I guess the answer to that is simple, Barry. I don't know what the hell difference it would make if they did declare it a disease, really, uh, except perhaps insurance purposes. But we've got we've got our 12-step program, and each of us have to come to grips with this thing, whether it's a disease certified by the medical society or not. Let me put it this way. Uh, this particular guy is convinced plenty, and I don't... If, if a thousand doctors said it was a disease, I'd say, you know, okay, glad to hear it, thanks. I, I, I don't need any more justification than what I see in the experience we've already got in the fellowship, small as it is. Yeah? Well, I ask it because uh, the vantage point would be if it's not declared by the medical community as a disease, then a sex addicted person would be looked on society as a criminal and not a sick person. Yeah, I guess uh, that might be, but I, I just have seen, uh, would, if it was declared as a disease, he said, uh, then we would be looked on as just a person instead of, if it's not a disease, we're criminals. And the answer, I just assume see us be looked on as criminals. I don't want any cop-out for what we're doing. I don't give a damn who says it's fine. To me, it ain't fine at all. And to me, there's a higher court than the legal system. And that's the court of my accountability to God himself, or herself, whatever form that may take. Yeah? Yeah. Good. No, 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 not at all. That's what happened to me. But, no, I don't advocate nothing. Take what I advocate, you taking what God offers you. And if God offers you a beautiful sexual relationship with your wife, beautiful, take it. Nancy, if God offers you a beautiful sexual relationship with your husband, take it. I'm saying, what I'm, the point that I'm making is, if, if celibacy, which is in a sense the worst case scenario as far as a sexual relationship is concerned in marriage, is the case, no sweat. No problem. But I'm not advocating. I'm just saying that's the situation and it hasn't kept me and my wife from having a, a, a very good marriage. And hell, we've been married 45 years. Come last July, that's a pretty good deal. And there's times when she just as soon bail out, but ah, she keeps coming back. So can't beat it with a stick. Yeah. John, I'm a sexaholic. Yeah, John. I'm not doing any courtship right now. I don't think 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of look at it, and, you know, it's like a dirty job, and somebody's got to do it. You know. Yeah, it is. <laughs> right. Um, I hope you don't have to do it. That, uh, <laughs> you said that um, you felt alarmed for people that you've known that they lusted after their their clean time. They yeah. The their date. No, not their clean time. Their date. Their sobriety date. Okay. And you asked two questions there, John, and they're both powerful, good questions. The last one I'll answer first. And that he's, he said I told somebody who was going through uh, a courtship situation not to lust after their. Uh, he said clean time. I didn't say not lust after their clean time. Every day I can get without acting out sexually is a beautiful day. I said, don't lust after that specific sobriety date, where that date becomes the be-all and end-of-all of you. If I find myself in a situation where I entertain, where lust knocks at the door, I say, hey, lust, come on in, or I will premeditatively, this is murder one, I will premeditatively say, well, i got to have some lust in my life. This is too dry and dull without it. I'm going to go out and get some lust. This cat's got a new sobriety date. Uh, it doesn't mean my sobriety time is wasted. It isn't. But I do have a new sobriety date, and it's tough as hell, and it's like the AA guy says, we don't, well, he says, I know I got another drunk in me, but I don't know that I got another sobering up in me. Okay, so that's what I mean about that, is I want what's important to me being right with God, and if Shane runs into a situation with his girlfriend where he sees him going himself across the line, then I want him to say, Jess, I need a new sobriety date. But I'm back reporting for duty again, and I'm saying, hey, God, hey, guy, you and I are both sober starting this morning, and that's what's really important. Okay, now on the next issue, I see, I see people coming into SA, and it irks the hell out of me, and my tolerance and surrender isn't near what it should be, they get about 30 days of sexual sobriety and, okay, now I want a sexual relationship. Or now I want to get another sex. I want to get into a relationship. I think the least seen line there is is in the statement of the problem where it says we will not have sex with ourselves or others, including getting into relationships. Nobody hears that. Okay, when are you ready for getting into a relationship? And the answer is, to me, because of the terrible, destructive effect of this stuff on our ability to relate to another person, the longer you can hold off going out in that market and learning to love a woman, the better. What I tell people over and over, for God's sakes, stay in the fellowship and learn to love the people in your same sex. And do that and do that over and over again. And I have learned to love men deeply. And as I have learned to do that, it has prepared me. If I had, if Jackie died and I had to make a new relationship, it has prepared me now for having a, a good chance at making a good, solid relationship. But it is, it was inconceivable. To, I, I couldn't believe how long it took me to get my feet on the ground in terms of being able to handle intimacy and closeness and warmth, like what I talked about in our thing last night. Here were four guys sitting around loving each other, joying in each other's company. Okay, that's what courtship is about. 
And the safe way for a sexaholic is to learn intimacy in a same-sex situation and joy in their presence and, uh, and graduate only when God practically forces a potential partner upon you. But for God's sakes, don't go out and look for one. Or don't hunger for one. Or don't sit around and whine because you haven't got one or you should have one. At least not to me. <laughs> so, uh, how much time we got left? Okay. Uh, okay, this gives me the time I need then to stop all the other poisons. Okay, I saw that I stopped the lust. And I was working my steps and I... I Went through them carefully like I did to you. Then I saw, well, my wife pointed it out. She said, wanting anything is lust. Greed, money, you know, power. And then I saw, the first lust I saw was when Gordon from the program came through my house and he told me how his in-laws were concerned about his profanity. And I saw the hit I got from using profanity. So I got profanity sobriety. And sometimes I'll lose it in five, ten minutes. But other times I won't. Sometimes I'll go days and weeks without a piece of profanity. But I saw I got a charge from it. So I said, it's got to go. All charges have got to go. Okay, the next sobriety I saw was driving. I was speeding to go fast to get that charge. Passing in situations where it was somewhat dangerous, maybe, or there was a question, I could feel my, I could, because my guts got quiet for so long, I could feel that stuff stirring down there when I did it, and I said, I don't want that stuff stirring. So I got traffic sobriety. Okay, now, what that amounted to is when I would come into my, into town, I'm out in the country a ways, and seven miles, and I come into town, and it says 55 miles an hour, you go to 45, I'd slow down to 45. And a bit later, you slow down to 35, and then you drive 25 miles in town. And I would do that. I was so stupid in doing it, though, that I was a problem to the people behind me. Once in a while, my son or wife would be behind me, and they'd complain about, hey, you idiot, you're not supposed to hit your brakes when you hit a speed zone sign. And just ease into it, gradualness. Well, gradualness and sexaholism do not mix. So that's why I needed the idea of in the next, I'm going to lose 20 pounds in the next 20 years. That's gradualness. Okay, so I got sexual sobriety, or rather I got uh, traffic sobriety. And then I learned to get the right kind of traffic sobriety after some years. What real traffic sobriety is, is driving focused on what the other people around you want in the way of right away and then giving it to them. So if somebody wants the right-of-way, I give it to them. But I have to give it to them in a, such a gentle, quiet way that I don't interfere with the traffic behind me or I don't let that person know that I've given them the right-of-way. If, if somebody notices what I'm doing, like my wife and son did there, I'm doing it dumb. It says when I slow up for a speed limit, I need to slow up just gradually having an eye on my rearview mirror that I'm not offending anybody behind by drifting back into them. <laughs>
Okay, if somebody cuts in front of me like this, I need to just slowly back off. And Or if somebody I can see wants to get over into my lane and they're behind me, I need to just kind of slow up so they can say, oh gee, that guy's just slowing down. I just can scoot in front. They don't even notice. They don't realize that I did it on purpose. And, and then I've extended that into all other areas of my life. Our post office happens to have a cunning trap designed uh, through the lousiest design in the world. You walk up to these uh, revolving doors and there's no room for you on, on the inside. So I just walk up the door, they're glass, and so I can see them. And I walk up the revolving door and let the, if there's somebody coming, I let them come through and then I step into the revolving door. And then when I'm coming down the aisle, I see if somebody's there and kind of move around I walk in the drugstore to get my copy of USA Today to hear how my beloved Boston Celtics are doing. And you guys are loving to thump on them. But I go down the aisles. They're narrow. So I look and see if somebody's in that aisle. If there is, I walk over the next aisle and go down an aisle that's open. Okay. The point of what I'm doing is the tiniest part of it. What's the point? The biggest point is paying attention. Me being mindful. Knowing where, that, where I'm at all the time and what I'm doing. So there's some unbelievable benefits to seeing lust. And I recently heard, just two nights ago, the most overwhelming example of lust of all. Did I tell you about the meeting lust? No, okay. Uh, we're meeting, we're changing our home office to uh, Nashville. And Roy went down to interview some people and help out and was, was real help in getting that thing established and giving his experience there. Well, Roy once in a while goes crazy. Uh, you gotta be crazy to start a program like this. And so he went kind of, he went kind of crazy on Harvey and, and screamed at Harvey about what lousy meetings they had at Nashville and he better do something about it. And Harvey was just so kind of hurt by this and so he called me and said, what am I going to do? And I said, well, you got good meetings and just, you know, take it. That's the way it is. So the next night was the old timers call. Last Tuesday night, we uh, the old timers have a conference call uh, once a, once a month, and uh, we were talking. So Harvey told about that experience, but then he said I was thinking about it, and I saw something very important. Well, I know part of the conversation was Roy told him you got to have meetings like North Hollywood. That's the only way to have meetings, and you really have good meetings then. And Harvey wasn't prepared to buy that because there's various evidence. The evidence on that situation is somewhat mixed still. We're watching it carefully and see all everybody in the fellowship is. So anyway, Harvey said, I thought about it and then I realized something. That a lust for meeting or that wanting meetings to be better than they are is lust. Wanting meetings to be better than they are is lust. So that's overwhelming because how many times have I sat in a meeting being upset at what's happening in the meeting? When you take me back to my first six months in Sexaholics Anonymous and you say, Jess, I can put you in a meeting where there are a bunch of people identify themselves as sexaholics, what will you give me? I said, God, I'll give you anything. It means so much to me. Okay, what do I do? The minute I get used to it, I, oh well, that's, 
that I take it for granted. So I've got to get the beginner's mind on newcomers. And that is each of you who will identify yourself as a sexaholic, I don't care what kind of program you've got, you are the most precious thing, you're more precious than gold and pearl. Because with you I can sit down, I can say I'm a sexaholic, and say what I need to say, you say that you're a sexaholic, and you say what you need to say. And that's worth a million dollars to me. I don't care whether you spend your whole time whining about any particular therapy or any other thing in the world. All you need to do is to say one thing. I'm a sexaholic. If you say that, I I have to learn to love to be in your presence. I don't say I can do it very well all the time, but I'm learning better and better to do it. And there is absolutely no way I can excuse condemning any one of you for anything that you do in that meeting. I need to carry the recovery in me in a sense of demonstrating it. I need to be an example of recovery, not try to shove recovery down somebody's throat with my fist. What in the heck kind of a demonstration is that? You see? So, yeah? 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 No. Well, that's, no, there's nothing wrong. There is, you're not supposed to drive like I was driving. When you're skiing, uh, yeah, it's exciting. Enjoy it. That's different. God will guide you, tell you the difference. Yeah. My name is John, I'm a sexaholic. Yeah, John. You're talking about, uh, I'm trying to understand what you're talking about. You had mentioned that uh, the first time you said you were a sexaholic, that's when you no longer ever thought about lust. Or when lust came to your door, you immediately dismissed it. Yeah. And you've done that for 11 and a half years. Uh, so, from what your understanding is, is that there's really no recovery until you can do that. Is this what you're saying? Uh, it isn't. Is John, did you say? Yes. It, John, it isn't. His question was, is it, am I saying that there's no recovery until you can say you don't invite lust in at all anymore? And the answer is yes, there is recovery if you're still inviting lust in. But you're, it, the recovery is restricted and limited in ways that I don't like to fool with. There's plenty of people in this program who've got a lot of recovery and who are, to my view, real careless on their boundaries about lust. And, and I'm not arguing for either view. I'm putting forward my opinion on, on my view and showing what I see as the evidence to support it. One of your sponsees, you were telling a change in sobriety date in inviting lust in. What's that now? You had said that one, with one of your sponsees that you would ask him to change his sobriety date if he invited lust in. If he invited lust in in a sense that it seemed to me was substantial enough. In, uh, it's like the difference between murder one and manslaughter. Uh, some murders are manslaughters, others are murder one. Murder one's premeditated, uh, and manslaughter's in a sense kind of accidental. If he, uh, 
I don't, well, there's no way of calling it. And essentially, he, uh, I wouldn't say, say to him, I would want you to roll your sobriety date back. I always, I, I'm saying to him, hey, God is going to guide you. He was in a situation where he considered it, and his guidance was that he would. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.